Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, December 20th, the Whiskey Stones and Stabby Things edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And joining me for today's episode, we have Kristen Meinzer, who co-hosts the podcast by the book. Hey, Kristen. Hey, thanks for having me back. So happy to have you back. Um, We're also welcoming a new guest host for the very first time, TJ Raphael, senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Welcome to the show, TJ. Hey, Christina. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, we've been wanting to have you on for a while. I'm so glad it worked out. Um, So we heard from a bunch of listeners on gender reveal parties. I wanted to shout out some of the people who emailed saying that they had gender reveal parties. Um, I There were some good points made to me, at least, somebody who, you know, had a little bit of a difficult time understanding why somebody would have something like that. Um, I really appreciate the people who wrote in um, to school me on their own perspectives. Um, and one reader suggested that sometimes gender reveal parties are a way to... Um, tell everyone else that the baby was planned and wanted, Um, something I had never thought of before. So thank you for that. Um, This week, I'm really excited about our topics. We are going to start off with Meghan Markle, um, Princess Meghan Markle, and the what seems like dozens of mini scandals, quote unquote, surrounding uh, her family and her performance as princess over the past few months. Um, Then we're going to talk about the gender doctrine of holiday gift guides in which men are treated like cartoonish lumberjacks. And finally, we're going to talk about a new study that found that movies with female leads make more money at the box office than those with men in the top slot. Um, For our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to decide whether piercing babies' ears is sexist. This one came from a listener. Um, If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you would like to know whether piercing babies' ears is sexist, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, Meghan Markle. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Um, so I am so excited about this. <laughs> I'm also really excited about this. Um, and I'm so glad we have you here because I think to really understand what's been going on with all of these headlines about these like dramatic and embarrassing and unflattering stories, um, you really have to understand, have some pretty in-depth knowledge about how the royals work and how the British tabloid press operates. So Kristen, please give us a rundown on why people are talking about Meghan Markle and how much, if at all, it sort of differs from the typical royal gossip we get. Yes. And let me preface all of this by saying that up until quite recently, I was the co-host of When Meghan Met Harry, a royal wedding cast, (laughs) which um, was a complete lead up to the royal wedding. And then it concluded with us going to the royal wedding itself. And we have put out one bonus episode since then a few weeks ago. Um, Oh, cool. And 
I, I just I'm a big Megan fan. And uh, for those who don't follow her as closely as I do, roughly one year ago, Prince Harry announced his engagement to her. She is an actress from the United States. She is half black. She is divorced. She has a lot of things that the royals cannot stand or that the British press cannot stand. Um, and they got engaged. Then they got married in May. Their wedding was filled with celebrities and nobility, rubbing elbows. Tens of millions of people around the world watched. And then this October, they announced that they were pregnant and their child, who will be seventh in line to the throne, is going to be born in the spring. But um, while all this good news is happening at the same time, the British press has just been more abusive, more harassing than they've ever been with Megan. And this is saying a lot because when they were courting, Harry and Megan dealt with this as well. And Harry even took the unprecedented step of putting out a public statement saying, an official public statement saying, you have to stop with this racist and sexist harassment. And he called it harassment and abuse. Um, but in recent weeks, it's just been bigger than ever. The abuse is, you know, it's hurling all sorts of insults at Meghan. It's claiming that she's tearing the royal family apart. Uh, because of Meghan, Prince William and Prince Harry uh, can't even live next door to each other anymore, supposedly. Kate Middleton hates her. Her American work ethic is so insane that it's driving away all of her staff. Uh the stories just go on and on. And then on top of all of that, one of the main source of all of these stories, um, it's her own father and her older half-sister. So there are a lot of complications around where are the stories coming from. Well, in fact, they're coming from her family, partly. And it's coming from inside the house. Exactly. <laughs> so there's that confusion of like, hold on. who? But, but then there are other stories that are supposedly coming from inside the palace. So uh, let's talk about what all of this is about. And... First and foremost, should we just talk about the father and the sister? <laughs> Ugh, yeah, this has been uh, painful for me to witness, as I'm sure it is for a lot of people. Um, I So her father and her sister keep um, going on not only British news outlets, but also American news outlets to say, you know, why won't Megan talk to us? She's cutting us out. Meanwhile, she already was estranged from her half sister. I don't think they had seen each other in a decade. Um, but, you know, they're saying they're sort of threatening her by saying like, well, what if your dad dies? Don't you want to talk to him before he dies? Or like, you know, if you're stressing him out so much, that could hasten his death, which to me it seems like uh, emotional abuse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's really like shaming her for, you know, choosing as an adult woman not to have a relationship with a toxic family member. And realistically, you know, sometimes as adults, you have to make those decisions. You know, you have your family that you were born with and sometimes your personalities match and, and your relationships are good. And sometimes they're horrible. <laughs> and you just have to say, like, this person is not good for me and not good for my life. And I'm going to choose not to see them. I mean, especially now that the holidays are approaching, I think, you know, everybody has sort of that story of like a crazy uncle or aunt that you're like, I really don't want to deal with this person. Um, but when you're, you know, the Duchess of Sussex and your father um, seems a little bit like a lunatic, you know, it's understandable that you're going to want to say, like, I don't want you in my life. And even before this, even before she became a royal, uh, you know, she had made that determination. And it seems really clear that with this much larger platform, of course, she was a famous actress before this. But being a royal now, um, it really seems 
transparent to me that this is just a play for money and attention and airtime where realistically she's made a very adult decision to say, you are not good for my life. And I'm choosing as an adult, how old is she? 37 Mm -hmm. year old woman not to see you. And that's a totally fine thing that I'm, you know, it's, it's a shame that people are going after her in this way. Yeah. Yeah, And why would she choose to see her family anyway, because they're threatening her and getting paid by the press. Exactly. That's not appealing. Like, oh, I really want to hang out with these people who are saying horrible things about me and getting paid to say these horrible things about me. It's and it for me drives home the sort of inhumanity of some of these tabloid esque media outlets like TMZ, um, which has been giving um, Meghan Markle's data platform for interviews and stuff. And it reminds me almost of reality TV and these sort of quote unquote feuds that happen where like if you follow the story back to its origin. There isn't one other than like people want to be on TV. It's like the news coverage is the story, even if it's this sort of manufactured conflict that only one side is participating in. Meghan Markle has not been, you know, feuding with her dad and her half sister. They've just been feuding with her in the press. And um, it kind of makes me wonder whether there is any this, you know, not to like besmirch any anyone's interests in the royal family, but like. It's, can there be any good royal coverage when it seems like the good stuff feeds the obsession with the royals, which feeds the bad stuff? Like, no one would care whether Meghan Markle's half-sister is showing up at the palace unannounced to try to talk to her if they didn't care about the social lives of the royals, which, you know, why do we care about them in the first place? Oh, for so many reasons. <laughs> I know, and that's why I'm glad you're here. <laughs> yes. Well, they're, I, I always like to say they're the longest-running reality show family <laughs> in the history of the world. Yes. Because we have been watching them and keeping up with their marriages, divorces, in some cases killing their wives uh, for centuries. This is a family that, I mean, the Kardashians aren't even close to being in the public eye this long. And they're always up to something crazy. And it's always interesting and entertaining. And they're always wearing great clothes. And they look fabulous while they're doing it. (laughs) And now you have this new character on the scene. And in my opinion, she is the best looking person to ever marry into this family. She's the most interesting one. And it's it's exciting to watch all of this unfold, especially when this new person entering the family already was a humanitarian and was already an outspoken feminist before she entered the family. And so to see somebody who's so thoroughly, I don't want to say modern, but just like not antiquated, she's like completely with the times. Mm-hmm. It's so fun to watch that. And especially the fact that she looks a little bit more like the British Empire. I mean, if you look at all of the places that they've invaded and all of the people who live there, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not all white inbred people related to each other. And <laughs> and and with Megan there, it looks a little bit more like the rest of the world, just a tiny, tiny bit that royal family does. So um, but I, I do want to point out something here that I'm kind of uh, backing into already, which is racism. You know, mm-hmm. she is half black and the British press um I think has not been subtle about the racism here. And so while it's true that her family is feeding a lot of these stories, they already had a propensity to kind of cover the stories the way they're covering them anyway, because they have historically been very racist. The tabloids, the UK tabloids. Yeah, it. I think uh, this is one way where, uh, you know, there's obviously been 
mean-spirited coverage of Kate Middleton too, but this is it's it's almost like a whole different category what's happening with Meghan Markle. And um my colleague Rachel Hampton wrote a really good piece in Slate this week about how um like everyday black people in their workplaces are kind of constantly deciding how to choose their battles about when to speak up and uh, about, you know, racist behavior and and what's worth pushing back against and what's not, especially when you're in a position where, you know, just the act of speaking up could sort of get you labeled as like a problem person and too aggressive and whatever. And I I think that that is what's going on a little bit with Meghan Markle, where she is the only black person in her workplace. You know, if you consider her colleagues like the other royal family, uh, the other members of the royal family, and she's comes from a very different cultural context than they do, than even Kate Middleton does. You know, she was also not um, a royal. Uh, I don't know. Do they, they marry within the, the royalness a lot, don't they? Yes, yes. And as a matter of fact, Kate was... Um, she was considered middle class based on royal standards, even though she came from a family of – they're a self-made millionaire family. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, she went to school with yeah. – she went to school with Prince William, right? I mean, they were basically – even though she wasn't a royal, she was still, um, you know, not middle class by any – any standards that we would. Um, Realistic. Yeah. And meanwhile, Meghan Markle, like, you know, you said, Kristen, she's like divorced and she's half black and she like comes from the States and uh, has is like completely different from anyone that they've ever had to deal with. And so she is in this position where anything that she says, you know, like some of the examples that they've been using in the press is like she wanted an emerald tiara instead of I don't know a diamond one or whatever the standard tiara is made out of. Um, she is has been sending a lot of emails. Um, she you know Kate Middleton allegedly cried at one point when they were at some sort of bridesmaid fitting. Like it, it's it there's these little things that's apparently have been happening have all been colored with. Or, or they've been viewed through this lens of like, oh, well, Meghan Markle, you know, when she anything that she does to assert herself is going to be viewed as like, oh, why is she being a thorn in the side of the royal family? Yes. And not only that, anything that may be nothing to do with her is being blamed on her. For example, uh, Harry and Meghan are breaking off uh, from Kensington Palace and moving into their own home. Good for and you. and. It, right, get away from the family. Yes, Come you on. don't need to live next door to or in the same house as your family forever. I mean, you guys are in your late thirties. You can yeah. start a new life if you want to. And uh, some people are saying, "Oh, Megan's breaking up these brothers," and it's like, well, frankly, the heir and the spare. It doesn't really need to be that anymore because William already has his own heirs and spares at this point. Yeah, and what what in line is Harry? Like, yeah, he's pretty far down. Yeah, you know? like he's never going to be king of England or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen at this point. So, um, I think there are other things happening that just happen to be timing out at the same time as Meghan entering the picture, and so people are blaming Meghan because she's an outsider and she's. You know, they use the word outsider a lot, and sometimes that feels very thinly veiled as far as saying, you know, she is racially and culturally different. But that's a great right, thing. I, like, she, all the things that she's doing seems like things that the royal family should be doing if they want to continue having any relevance in the 21st century, you know? And, and that's not just to say, like, being more diverse, but, like, having a personable social media presence, 
um, you know, having a an, um, quote unquote American work ethic. Like, what does that even mean? Just like you, you actually want to do projects. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, I read a piece in The Guardian about this and, you know, they, you know, criticized her um, creating sort of a quote, like Hollywood environment. And I'm like, you are literally queens and kings and princes. And like, <laughs> that is way m- the lifestyle that you're leading as like a royal family is way more lavish than anything that you would even see in Hollywood. Like you have these jewels that you've robbed throughout from centuries throughout the world and you wear them <laughs> proudly on a constant basis. So you know, if she's sending early emails. I really don't see how that's like an assault to like their culture. <laughs> like you're literal royalty. You live in a palace. Like that's way more high maintenance than a couple notes early in the morning. <laughs> I mean, and to go back to, you know, the racial treatment of her, I think it speaks to, yeah, how what we saw with Michelle Obama uh, here mm-hmm. in the States when she was first lady um, and this trope of the angry black woman and that she really had to be sort of the perfect first lady. And even that wasn't enough. So, and yeah, any misstep that Meghan Markle has, however little, is going to be amplified uh, times five because of her racial background. And it's really sad to see. And I mean, also looking at the history of the British press and what happened with Princess Diana, you would think that, you know, there would be some learning at this point to not... Uh, aggressively harass the royals in this way or especially the royal women it does remind me of the way that donald trump and um people like ben shapiro have have been like harassing women on twitter to be like oh you know respond to me debate me or um like donald trump and elizabeth warren like i'm gonna keep calling you these names until you i'm gonna keep calling you pocahontas until you respond to that harassment and then she ended up responding to it in a really problematic way um but uh so i almost feel like if if this was any other situation or any, if she was in any other position, they would continue to harass her until she basically snapped. But she can't because she's a royal. And I know uh, some of the other gossip going around suggests that, unsurprisingly, she's really upset that she's not allowed to stand up for herself because she also was never a person who was just going to, you know, sit and smile and wave with her elbow the way that the royals do. Um, she's the person who, you know, was really active talking to her fans and had a lot of public opinions about things. And now um, she's expected to just sort of ignore what's going on around her and these really unfair statements that are being made about her, which makes me wonder, why would she want to do this in the first place? And I know the heart wants what it wants. And I'm sure she's really in love with her husband and everything. But like, there's a lot of men out there. And (laughs) I watched two movies recently, um, The Princess Switch and A Christmas Prince. Oh, Uh, I love both those movies. (laughs) Two Christmas movies on Netflix. Um, And uh, they were all about how princesses can't be themselves and can't do the things that normal people can do and the the oppressive demands that royal status places on people. But then they were also about how great it is to fall in love with a prince and like how wonderful it is to live in a palace with all of these fancy chandeliers and dresses. And I do wonder whether, uh, you know, for all of the, we all know that like making that like princess culture is, is, uh, can be damaging for like young girl self-esteem and blah, 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 and like uh, compulsory femininity. But also it's uh, it feels like it's 
um, on a very micro level, because very few women will get to marry a prince, it's like maybe making women want to enter these extremely oppressive and repressive marriages. That's my hot take. (laughs) <laughs> all right. So first of all, just want to reiterate how much I like both those movies. Excellent, <laughs> excellent film choices. Um, but I do think there's a trade-off here. And I think that historically, if you married into the royal family, it did give you obviously more wealth than you would have ever had and True. more of a platform than you would have had prior to that for whatever causes or interests that you had, uh, where you could be a patron of the arts or of other causes that you cared about. And in the case of Meghan Markle, I could see as somebody who already was historically a humanitarian and a vocal feminist, that this would give her a chance to work on causes that are near and dear to her heart. And she's already proven that to be the case. If you look at the cookbook that she was a part of um, just a few months ago, Together, Our Community Cookbook. And that was worked on with women who survived the Grenfell Tower fire, which killed many people in London. And um, just all of the other causes she's been a part of when she was doing her Antipodean tour through Australia, New Zealand, and so on, and who she was visiting and uh, the issues she was speaking about. And you can see that it is giving her a chance on a wider world stage to be able to address some of these concerns of her. So if if you want to look at it that way, I can see, you know, the draw of that, that, you know, to marry into the royal family and be able to be a part of those causes. And maybe this will push the royal family to a new place in the future. I mean, maybe once, you know, the dearly beloved queen departs us um and you Don't know sort her, TJ. <laughs> i love her uh she seems like a nice woman but yeah i mean once there's sort of a new era in buckingham palace you know perhaps you know the megan will be able to usher in yeah uh you know the royal family to you know 2020 and beyond yeah. uh to this century so um yeah, I'm I'm feeling optimistic about it. I mean, I uh the fact that she is already demonstrating that she isn't afraid to speak her mind even behind the scenes if we were to believe some of these um gossip columnists and that Harry has also been outspoken to say the way she's being treated is not acceptable and and maybe he's even going to move out. Um I feel okay about that. Listeners, um let us know if you follow the Royals and and whether you feel ambivalent about it or guilty about it, um, now seeing how our obsession with them is leading to all this harassment of Meghan Markle, uh, you can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, our next topic. So I wrote a piece this week on holiday gift guides. I have been wanting to do this for years because it started out um, with just whiskey stones. I became fixated on whiskey stones and more specifically their uh, ubiquity on holiday gift guides for men. Um, and not that there's anything particularly wrong with whiskey stones, or so I thought before I did my research this year. Um, but I was like, why, why do 
all of these publications assume that, you know, men like whiskey and men don't want to drink their whiskey with ice in it. Then my interest sort of expanded into, you know, why is there a pocket knife on the gift guide every year? And, you know, if a man if a man is 60 years old and his family has been getting him gifts from the holiday gift guide every year, doesn't he already have whiskey stones and pocket knives by now? Um, So now it's sort of a hate reading tradition for me. Uh, to read these holiday gift guides for women, yes, but also for men, because the male gift guides are especially ridiculous. Um, There's stuff that's on there every year. I would say the categories are like stabby things, like a like a <laughs> steak knife or pocket knife or a champagne saber. There's leather things like a you know wallet or a cooler that's actually made out of leather. There's shaving oh and God. beard stuff. There's meat stuff, like a subscription to a meat company or like barbecuing and grilling things. And then there's so much alcohol. Alcohol and alcoholic accoutrements. <laughs> um, and so this year I, I did a little bit of a deep dive into um, some holiday gift guides and came up with a little bit of a... a a theory of the gender doctrine around them. But I want to ask you guys, because I already wrote about this, uh, is this something that you've noticed and does it bother you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have noticed it when I have in the past tried to buy gifts for, you know, my significant other and I'm Googling, you know, because at some points I had gotten him what I felt like was everything and he didn't really need (laughs) anything else. Um, But yeah, like Googling like stuff to get your boyfriend or whatever. And yeah, the gift guides are all the same. Yeah, whether it's a holiday gift guide or for a birthday or anniversary. And it's really unfortunate because it's like the person I was with didn't really like any of those things. And what were his interests? um, He really liked... um, to just sort of be outside, but not in like a, a like manly like chop wood kind of way. Like we would just walk with my dog like in the park. Like that's sort of the nice things that we would do on the weekend together or we'd cook together or something like that. So, yeah, I I find it, you know, really yeah off putting to see that, you know, basically these all these gift guides. I also feel like they're geared to mainly like white guys, too. They're really, really yeah, like I feel like, um, you know, some of the things that I see on this list, like, I don't know, I've dated like men of every single race. And a lot of them, I feel like they're really geared towards broy white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not really representative of like the full spectrum of what men are. And yeah, I feel like they're super gendered and they're also really classist as well. They're not really for people of every socioeconomic level. It's really f- kind of for like hipster white guys. I feel like these gift guides are geared towards. Yeah. And it's amazing to me in a way that we even have gift guides still that are based on gender. And <laughs> I think it makes so much more sense for gifts for the movie lover, gifts for the outdoors yeah. person, gifts for the I mean, and I'll just say on behalf of my household, my husband, he does all of the cooking and housekeeping Bless him. Um, because his wife <laughs> is. Um, I don't want to say she's bad at those things, but his wife does not really do those things. <laughs> and every year, Santa brings my husband a different kitchen gadget so he can do more cooking and cleaning for her. So, I mean, he he is he loves these gadgets. He loves um, uh, experimenting in the kitchen and he loves all of this stuff. And the fact is, though, that if I were to look at a gift guide, almost every present Santa's brought him the last several years would not be in a man's gift guide. It huh. just wouldn't even show up there. Yeah. Because as you were saying, Christina, 
those gift guides are dominated by stabby things mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> it sounds like things. maybe he would like some kitchen knives. But if you already have one set of kitchen knives, you know, there's only yeah, really one really time set, you can you, get them. Yeah, you don't need a new one every year. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed when I was going through the gift guides this year, and I will say, you know, your point about classism, TJ, is well taken, though I will say I looked at a couple different uh, tiers of gift guides. So, for instance, the one in Esquire was full of extremely expensive things. The most ridiculous thing on that one for me was a set of Louis Vuitton coasters that were oh $750. <laughs> Like, I don't know many men that are, like, inclined to even use like, coasters. Like, isn't that a trope? Like, <laughs> why why would you – I would not, never put a con- condensation-attracting drink on a Louis Vuitton coaster. You know, that thing would never no. be getting wet. Is it also leather? Um, actually, I wasn't sure what it was made out of. It was probably made out of leather. Um, I assume because that's sort of a leather company. But then there was, yeah. you know, the good housekeeping um, gift guide for men was full of things that were, like, you know – $15. Um, so I think there it is possible to make a gift guide for people who aren't bajillionaires. Although, you know, most of the gifts that I, I will look at on a holiday gift guide are extraordinarily expensive because, you know, it's fun to recommend those things, I'm sure, for editors and writers who are making them. Um, but one thing that I've noticed over the years is that a lot of times I can picture women or people of any gender enjoying the things on a men's gift guide because, you know, like I could also use a pocket knife maybe. Like sometimes I need to cut things or like women like drinking, but I couldn't picture men using all the things on women's gift guides because often they were the women's version of just a normal thing. So this year um, I looked at Mashable's gift guides. Mashable's a a publication that revolves around tech for the most part. So they were, you know, a lot of the things on there were gadgets. For the men, they recommended this, um, you know, voice-activated home assistant, a smart speaker, uh, just a regular, I think it was a Cortana, whatever, Microsoft speaker. For women, they recommended an Amazon Echo Look, which I had never even heard of, but it is apparently a smart speaker for women, that specifically oh helps you manage your wardrobe and takes pictures of your outfits and tells you how you look from different angles. Um, or like, <laughs> I want to smash that. <laughs> I know. So brown liquors, specifically whiskeys, are like the only thing that are recommended in men's gift guides. They never recommend a vodka, never recommend a gin, never recommend never like, a tequila, never yeah, Prosecco. Right. Um, although they will recommend a champagne saber, I found this year. Um, but for women on the Esquire gift guide, f- they recommended three different types of alcohol. One was a wine of the month club. Women love wine. And the other two were sparkling rosés. Like, oh why God. do you need to have two different sparkling rosés on a <laughs> gift guide and not one type of other alcohol besides this wine of the month club, which probably would include a sparkling rosé? Um, so like the, it's like the man things, you know, maybe everybody could like these things, women things. Oh, this is very specifically, not that men don't drink sparkling rosé, but they were, it felt like they were conspicuously trying to make them extra girly. And I think that maps on to how society conceives of masculinity and femininity in general, where manhood and manly things are sort of the norm. And then feminine things are deviations from that norm. And, and you know, it's a lot easier for women to adopt 
masculine ways of dress and speech and interests than it is for, you know, men will be shamed if they do the same the other way around. Mm. I mean, I see it more not in the bubbly pink wine so much as a flask for anybody versus a flask for a woman which has flowers on it and is pink. Oh, yeah. Or, or a flask that's like a bracelet. I've seen that on yes. a lot of women's <laughs> Like great because I don't ha- I don't have a pocket but I do wear bracelets. Yes, because women, that's the way it is for women. Yes, and so I think it's more offensive in in those cases where it's like okay, so actually we do have these whiskey uh, shot glasses or these highball glasses, but they are etched with princesses or whatever it is, <laughs> and I, I think that's more offensive to me than the bubbly wine because. Mm. You assume that I can't just drink out of the same glass as a man, and now you've gendered the glass so much that men who are brought up in our society would be considered uh, pansies or what have you if they were drinking out of this glass um, or choosing to buy this glass. Yeah. I did wonder whether I'm expecting too much out of a a humble gift guide. There was one person who responded to um, the article on Twitter which I thought this was a really mean-spirited response, but perhaps they have a point. There are Comment was, no shit, Sherlock. Amazingly, gift advice targeted at generic sex only includes generic sex interests. Generic sex interests, not exactly sure what that means, but don't expect personalized advice from a gift guide, idiots. Fair. Oh, that is needlessly harsh. <laughs> that is like really needless. <laughs> it was a little bit harsh, but then I was like, you know, I, I, I guess it's we can both be right. Like, yes. They, um, you know, a a man's gift guide is not going to apply to every man. And obviously, people should be able to come up with their own gifts based on their own uh, loved ones, unique interests. And and also both and it's the fact that these gifts have been uh, recommended for just sort of like an anonymous, uh, unnamed member of this gender says something about what we think that gender is and wants. And I think, you know, under capitalism, people are sort of defined by what they consume. And I know that the thing now is like uh, a lot of people will say on Twitter, like, oh, liking X thing is not a personality. Well, like under capitalism, it kind of is like I think a lot of men do identify themselves as like, I'm a grilling woodsy whiskey kind of guy you know yeah i mean i think it goes all the way to the brand of car you drive and you know all all sorts of things um are more gendered male than female i think about when i say what kind of car i'm referring to certain uh outdoorsman truck sorts Mm, of vehicles mm -hmm. um yeah but what shouldn't the three of us just put together a gift guide for men it's like here it includes if you're my husband a vacuum cleaner and a, and like if you're my nephew a doll. I yeah, don't, I, don't I literally got my dad this year a vacuum cleaner because he asked for one. He was like, "Mine is broken. It's on the way out. Can you like? I'm looking at Amazon. Here's a good one." So I got him a vacuum cleaner. This guy that I'm dating, I got him a piece of pottery because I saw it on a trip and I was Aww. like, "You know what? I think he'll like that. It's a Navajo uh, handcrafted piece of pottery from the top of the Grand Canyon." And I was like, "You could put change in there or like whatever, you know." So. I think it's really also, you know, the person, not only the person you're buying for, but like how you view yourself in the gender spectrum or through gender stereotypes where you, you know, might be a woman or a man that like wants this male partner to be that lumberjack that you described, Christina, in your piece. Oh, interesting. 
Um, so I think that that is also part of it. Like when you look at, you know, the publications that write these, like Town and Country, like the Town and Country reader, like who is she? And she and probably is also in this prison of ger- gender stereotypes as well, or Good Housekeeping, or Esquire. You know, I think it's also to you know thinking about these publications too. It's who are the assigning editors usually? I mean, we know in the media white men are still dominating in, you know, editorial leadership positions. Um, So, you know, they're assigning these stories and sort of probably working with these writers to say, no, we need more like manly stuff on here. Um, So I think that's also part of the problem. And like, yeah, like somebody that's reading Goop, like, you know, I kind of know who that woman is. (laughs) And, um, you know, she wants to, you know, rejuvenate her vagina and like have a manly man next to her. (laughs) Um, So I think that it's also, you know, something to keep in mind with these gift guys. It's like they are sort of marketed towards um, in the same way they're marketed towards men of this is what men should like. It's marketed towards women who want their men to be like this. Huh. Mm, that is such will, a good point. Oh, I agree with you almost 100%. I will quibble with your definition of goop a little bit just because I know Gwyneth Paltrow's husband, um, Brad Falchuk, like does the herbal steam you know, meditation bath with her and stuff like that. And so I I think part of it is exactly what you're saying, TJ. And another part of it might be that our brains are now so accustomed to just reverting to the same masculine stereotypes. I ask myself why I find it harder sometimes to buy gifts for the men in my life than for the women in my life. And I think it's because I am schooled to believe that men have this like narrow set of interests or a narrow, even like a narrow color palette that they would enjoy wearing. Mm -hmm. And it's largely based in truth. I mean, I think about my dad, who's the person who, um, you know, I was looking for ideas when I first started looking at these gift guides a couple of years ago. And you know, he pretty much fits the stereotype. Like he likes fishing. He likes golfing. He wears plaid. He drinks vodka, though, which makes him, you know, woo, like slightly feminine, I guess. (laughs) He's basically a woman. Um, But I so I I don't necessarily think it's yeah, like it's the 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 target audience for these things might be broader than I myself would like to believe. Listeners, (laughs) uh, I would love to know if any of you have used these gift guides. Have you ever bought a gift for the cartoonish lumberjack in your life? Did he love his whiskey stones? Uh, or are you a listener who loves whiskey stones and is upset that I uh, insulted them on this podcast? Email us at thewaves at slate.com. Movies. A new study of the top 350 movies released from 2014 to 2017 has found that those starring women earned more than those with men in the top roles. TJ, tell us a little about what the data said and how we should think about it. Yeah, so a piece in the New York Times that came out uh, on December 11th by Kara Buckley um, found that movie starring women earn more than male-led films. And um, basically, the data shows that the top movies from 2014 to 2017 starring women earned more than male-led films, uh, whether they were made for less than $10 million or for more than $100 million. The study also drew information from the Bechdel test, um, you know, which looks at whether there are two women in a film that are talking to each other about something other than a man. Um, And, you know, of those, uh, 60% passed. uh, But the researchers found that no film between 2014 and 2017 
earned a billion dollars without passing that test and that no film has made a billion dollars without passing the test since 2012. So it seems like I'm really happy (laughs) that we're finally moving to this point where it's like, wow, women are able to have a conversation on film and prove that they can, you know, not only make a great uh, artistic project, but that they can make money from it. And, um, you know, some of my favorite films from this year are definitely uh, women-led. Hereditary was my hands-down favorite movie of the year. I'm a huge horror movie fan. And Toni Collette terrified me um, <laughs> like so deeply um, that I don't think I can ever watch it again. <laughs> That's but, how you know a favorite movie is good when you loved it so much that you can't ever watch it again. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we I think it really has been, um, you know, a banner year for women between A Star is Born and Ocean's Eight and, you know, um, Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich yeah. Asians in eighth grade. Um, and what... RBG, the documentary. Um, and on the basis mean, of sex, the non-documentary about Ruth yes. yes. Yeah. And um, and I think that it was also a great year f- um, in terms of for these storylines. Um, you know, a couple of the pieces that I read while we were preparing for this, you know, we're seeing more and more female characters that are multidimensional, that are struggling with things and that are not... Um, that are really breaking um, out of sort of these gender roles that make them very flat um, and that we're showing women be vulnerable. We're showing women struggle. We're showing women be villains uh, in a way that's not, um, you know, totally like a caricature of that. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was a fantastic year for women in film. Um, I really hope that we can maintain it in addition to seeing like women on film and having stories for um, stories written by women, I think we really also need more women in the director's chair. And so that's something that I'm really hoping in 2019 that we'll see a lot more of. Yeah. And even though it's been a banner year or a banner five years for for women at the box office, um, it doesn't change the fact that three fourths of the speaking roles or the leading speaking roles in movies are still men. And Mm -hmm. the fact that those quarter of films performed so well, it it just, I mean, to me, it, it makes me so much more angry looking at that other three-fourths of films out there. It's like, why is that still the case then? Three-fourths of films are still led by men, even though the women's films, quote, women's films, <laughs> the, the films with women in leading roles make more money. And I think it is partly because of what you're saying, TJ, because there are not enough women in the director's chair or in screenwriting rooms or in all of those other important roles behind the scenes. Yeah, I... So this probably says something really bad about my personality, but I did sort of focus in on those more dispiriting numbers, uh, which in 2017, women were only 8% of the directors. So 92% of the directors were men. There were only 10% of writers and 2% of cinematographers. I also want to turn around that Bechdel test uh, statistic for a second, which is to say that 40% of the films did not pass the Bechdel test, which means 40% of films didn't have two women talking to each other about something other than a man. It's kind of wild to think about that. Like, and I notice, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of that sort of parameter for judging a film. It's, you know, just because something passes the Bechdel test doesn't mean it's quote unquote feminist. And just because something doesn't doesn't mean it's quote unquote not. 
But I think it, it I I always notice when there's a movie where I'm like, huh, never really saw two women actually having anything about their characters that wasn't centered about a man on a man. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not all great out there. But the the part where women's where movies starring women made money, um, I guess, wasn't entirely surprising to me because women are half of the population and I think statistically buy about half of the tickets to movies. And, um, you know, I I think it makes sense that everybody, but especially women, would want to see movies with women in the starring roles. When I was reading about this study, you know, there were some people saying things like, and these are analysts, agents, whatever, like, oh, well, the more the more this happens, the more men are going to want to make movies about women because it makes more money. Um, and, you know, it's it's all business. Like, you've got to really show them the numbers to prove that a movie starring a woman is worth making. But, you know, this has been happening for a while. And it's there's still uh, a, a dearth of stories starring women out there. And uh, I I think that there's a lot more going on in the heads of these, you know, heads of production companies than just oh, I want to make a lot of money. I mean, need I mention Harvey Weinstein? Um, there's right. like uh, a lot of times logic is not the primary force motivating decisions that these people are making. And it's not you know, what's going to make me the most money? Oh, people like watching movies that star women. It's how do I keep myself and my friends in power? And how do I tell the stories that I want to tell? And also maybe, you know, how do I continue abusing women? But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just not convinced that this statistic is going to make any big difference in what movies get produced. Yeah. And I think on top of that, Christina, there's also the issue of just you know, you know, that whole stereotype of men don't think women are funny, for example, yeah. there are a lot of right. other things coming into play about men's beliefs about women's talents. Um, women aren't talented enough to write a funny script. Women aren't talented enough to direct. Women aren't funny on screen and so on and so forth. So there are all those stereotypes coming into play. And men are so accustomed to seeing the world through men's eyes that it doesn't even occur to them, even if money's involved, like that's not a good story. Because it's not the story that they're used to. Women, our whole lives, we're being forced to see the world through through men's eyes and through men's stories. Men aren't being forced to do that. And I want to also bring up something else here that we haven't talked about, which is 78% of film critics are men. And oh, wow. so if how films are being reviewed and how they're being exalted is all through the eyes of men as well, that perpetuates the issue of what is a good film? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and... It also made me think about what, you know, what makes a movie, if we want to frame it this way, good for women. Like, is it, uh, would it be better to have a movie that does really well and stars a woman but maybe has some, like, feminist pitfalls? Or would it be better to have a movie that does okay, you know, doesn't sell a ton but is, like, a very sensitive and truthful and nuanced portrait of women as they are um you know should i should i care whether a movie is quote unquote good for women um is it better to have a strong one-dimensional woman i'm thinking right now of wonder woman which i really didn't like 
Um, Same. Did not like it. No. Nope. Oh, yeah. really? Wow. I yeah, thought that yeah. would be a hot take. A lot of people were extremely upset with me on Twitter for my review of Wonder Woman, um, you know, which I thought was I the whole movie and, and all of the jokes that everyone was making in the movie was about, like, how sexy she was and stuff. Yeah, it was infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Terrible. Yeah. And it did the same thing as Brave did, where you have one female character and then 10 men. Yeah. Right. And we're supposed to be really excited because there's one female character yeah. who's actually a cartoon. I mean, right. I just with Wonder Woman, like I, I was like loving the beginning when she was on the all female island and I Loved thought that. the whole movie was going to take place there and it was like 10 minutes. And then, yeah, she goes away with all these guys and literally the only other, I think, female character um, other than in the beginning was literally a secretary. Mm-hmm. And, and then I there just was that one villain who was a woman. Yeah. Yeah, but like, yeah, so it was either a villain or a, a like this stereotypical, like, bumbling secretary, like, yeah. ooh, I'm so clumsy. Yeah. Or like the hot chick with all the guys. And like when she was like killing the monster at the end, Spoiler she like alert. thought of that. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, just Of course <laughs> she's going to kill a monster now. at the end. It's a yeah. superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> like when she's killing him, I was so infuriated that she like flashes back to the guy that she just met. I'm like, you wouldn't think of the female warrior mentor that you had for your entire adult life like or your entire life like when you're finally like and who the monster killed her like I just the whole thing was awful for me sorry yeah and <laughs> and, uh, and yet you know and no matter what your opinion on Wonder Woman is like that movie was really held up as well it's a new era for women in cinema because there's a woman starring in a superhero movie and you know I'm not a huge superhero story fan and so I will take that point from my friends who are who said like actually this is really revolutionary and you know young boys are going to see this movie and perhaps they'll want to you know emulate Wonder Woman in the same way that little girls have been forced to emulate like Batman and Spider-Man and all these you know fill in the blank men if they want to be superheroes Um, but the point being I think some of the movies that that if we look at the statistics um, that this study presents and looks look at these movies as a whole, it seems to present a very positive portrait. But if you sort of drill down into what movies were there, so um, 2017, it was this big deal, like the top three movies – uh, in the world, or the movies that made the most money in 2017 were all led by women. One of them was Wonder Woman. One of them was Beauty and the Beast, which is a movie that's already been made and was also about, you know, this woman who gets trapped in a castle and then falls in love with her abuser. And then the other one was um, Star Wars, which is, uh, I-, I will say, you know, maybe was technically female led, but also mostly starred men. And, you know, the woman in that story was not. Uh, even necessarily the the central character, um, even though she was like at the top of the cast list or whatever they were using as their um, parameter for this study. So I don't know if if you know there if the picture that this study paints is completely accurate when it comes to it, it, are we seeing a sea change in how women are portrayed in film, especially when, as you mentioned, Kristen, there are so few women actually making these stories in the first place. And it makes me think that there's that, you know, money is not going to make that difference. Like, oh, all these movies made a lot of money. So more women are going to be directors. They'll really need to sort of wrest that power away from the men who have it. 
One thing I would recommend our listeners check out is the hashtag Female Filmmaker Friday. Uh, every single Friday, like independent filmmakers and particularly women um, sort of turn out on social media and Instagram and on Twitter to sh- show you know what they're working on um whether they're on set my friend is an independent filmmaker and she every friday sort of comes out so you know cool i didn't know about uh, that hashtag yeah um actually one another slate podcast uh women in charge uh we interviewed aline brosh mckenna who's the the showrunner and writer behind uh, crazy ex-girlfriend um that show and uh yeah she's the one that kind of started that trend and so i'd also recommend checking out that interview because she goes into this a lot more but looking at that hashtag um and seeing women that are trying to break in and they're really of all ages and backgrounds um you know and maybe trying to retweet them amplify those voices a little bit more um it's a good way to sort of draw attention to what women are doing outside of you know mainstream hollywood especially yeah I'm curious if the two of you have seen your viewing patterns change over the past couple of years. Have you been making any sort of concerted effort to watch more women-led or women-created films? Is that something that you've just naturally been doing um, or been doing all your lives? Because I I think my viewing patterns have changed. I think I've done it my whole life. Um, uh, I think I've always longed for it. And that includes all the way back to childhood when I'd want to watch princess movies. I like seeing female protagonists in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, especially during the holiday season, one thing I love about holiday movies is they're usually female-led also. And so to kind of go back to something you mentioned earlier, Christina, is it, you know, what kinds of women do we want to see in movies? Do we want to see problematic things that are not quite feminist? Do we want to see... I, I want to see all kinds of women. I want to mm-hmm. see the problematic women. I want to see the superhero women. I want to see the Moanas of the world. I want to see the RBGs. I want to see all the kinds of women there are out there, um, including the silly, frivolous ones. I just... I, I want to see women in a diversity of roles, of jobs, of proclivities, of personalities, and so on. And um, I've longed for it ever since I was a little kid. And I remember my cousins being obsessed with Star Wars and a bunch of other action movies and hating them because they never included me. And so I think I always sought it out. It just infuriated me, the whole Star Wars thing. Oh, I hated it as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I never watched Star Wars, really. I think I've seen two of them and it wasn't for me. Um, Yeah, I mean, Christina, to your question, um, I definitely actively um, seek out female-led films and television shows. I actually have (laughs) an entire Netflix recommendation section called Movies or called hold on actually let me sign in because it's actually legitimate like i think i have this too it's like quirky dramas with a strong female lead or yes like exactly yes. <laughs> yeah like yeah like it's filled hilarious. with a strong female lead another yeah. thing where like the man thing is the default and then the woman thing has is the qualification you know because every other movie is just like funny drama or whatever with a, with a male lead is just movie you know (laughs) right yeah there's no qualifier next to it yeah and that's really obnoxious I mean I don't think my viewing habits have changed over the years I think that's just something that I've always been drawn to um you know I like stories about women I like you know sort of you know thinking about like yeah if I was sort of a badass character kicking ass and maybe it's an action film or something like that like I remember when I was younger like I saw like Aeon Flux in the theater with like Charlize Theron like and I was so hype about that (laughs) when I was in high school Um, so it's something that I've, I've always really sought out and I think 
you know, for me, now that, um, you know, streaming platforms, you know, they're ubiquitous with just watching television. I don't have cable or anything like that. Um, it's kind of like empowered me a lot to really only have that kind of programming if I want it. Like, a, like um, you know, I can really curate what I'm watching. And most of it, yeah, is dramas or comedies with strong female characters because I feel like they relate to me and I relate to them much more. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think I'm hoping that, um, you know, these streaming platforms like from Amazon Prime to Hulu and Netflix are leveling the playing field. So like thinking beyond Hollywood, thinking beyond like the silver screen or whatever and um, the box office, um, you know, I think hopefully these platforms are allowing more women's stories to surface outside of, yeah, traditional quote-unquote channels. I mean, I don't really go to the movie theater very often unless there's a film that I really want to see. I'll usually wait for it to come out otherwise on on Amazon or on Netflix or something like that. And I think, yeah, this year, one of the films I really did want to see and went to the theater for was Hereditary. Um, it was, One of them was Ocean's 8, even though I didn't actually love that film. I mean, um, so the box office in, in terms of, um, you know, female-led films, like that's what draws me to actually want to spend money um, to go out to the theater because that's not something that I usually uh, do unless it, it's a movie I really, really want to see. Yeah. I Now that I'm thinking about my own viewing history, um, I, I too have always been drawn to movies starring women. And part of me has sort of felt bad about that in, in parts of my life. Like, oh, I'm such a stereotypical woman. You know, I, I love a, a woman led drama or whatever. But also, yeah, because those are the ones that actually speak to my life more so than the ones that only star men. And the biggest change that I've seen in my own life in terms of what movies I prefer is I just have no patience for movies led by men that only have women in roles where they're sort of helping the man achieve his best life. Um, Like there's this one movie that I think I would have loved several years ago. It's um, coming out. It's called Welcome to Marwin. I don't know if you guys have seen the trailers for this. It's starring Steve Carell. I've seen the ads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't make a definitive judgment on it because I haven't seen it yet. But it really strikes me as one of these movies that's like uh, it's it's a man who has all of these women around him helping him succeed and so like it's his it's his arc it's his personality and his story and then he's just surrounded by these insanely gorgeous women who are like helping him realize things about himself God, <laughs> that's so I know and it's you know it's complicated like he has a traumatic past and whatever and and like I said I haven't seen the movie yet but like it's an example for me of something that I think is is probably a really great story and a lot of people will like it, and I might have liked it in the past, but right now I'm like, I've seen so many, I've seen that story told in so many different ways that I can't watch it one more time. I find them really not mind-numbing, and like, I don't really watch that much television or like on a weekly basis. Like, I I actually listen to more audio and, and podcasts, um, and so like when I actually do sit down to watch something. Um, you know, it's it. That's like the least thing that's going to speak to me, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably just going to piss me off a lot <laughs> and make me say, "Oh, this is why I don't watch TV." Right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's leave it there, um, listeners. Let us know what your favorite women-led movies were of the year, and also if if this study portends a sea change for you, or if you're cynical about it like me and think 
nothing is going to change anytime soon. Our email is thewaves at slate.com. Okay, recommendation time. Who wants to go first? Me, 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 me. <laughs> oh, wow. Let's the, hear it. <laughs> since, since we're on the topic of films, and I actually do think, to echo what TJ was saying, I do think that the streaming services are doing a better job than mainstream Hollywood um, with uh, women characters. And uh, I just, there's one that was recently released that I am in love with called Dumplin'. I saw that. Did you love it? It was great. It is so good. It is so good. Uh, It is about a teenage girl whose mother is a beauty queen, Miss Blue Bonnet, I believe it is, in Texas. And her mother is played by Jennifer Aniston. And I apologize. I don't remember the actor's name who plays the daughter. But she is a teenage girl who does not have what would traditionally be called a beauty queen body. She's more robust. She does not look like Jennifer Aniston. And... um. She doesn't quite fit into her mother's world, and she loves Dolly Parton, and Dolly Parton songs and Dolly Parton culture has helped uh, keep her happy throughout her life. And she decides at a certain point, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to break into my mom's beauty queen world, and I'm not going to change what I look like at all. I'm not going to lose weight, but I am going to develop more showmanship with the help of my Dolly Parton love and uh, Dolly Parton drag queens who help to kind of serve as her fairy godmothers and help her with her showmanship. And I cheered and I cried about a hundred times. And I'm a big Dolly Parton fan. When I got married, I honeymooned in Dollywood. So full disclosure. Um, (laughs) But the movie is so fun and so inspirational. And anybody who loves Dolly Parton, who loves women's stories, who um, is about body positivity, I think would enjoy this movie. So it's Dumplin'. I also agree that that's a great movie. Um, I have two recommendations to give. Um, The first one, hold on one second, is I... I recommend everybody check out the Slate shop. Um, Slate is selling some swag, and I am wearing the sock right now. Kristen can see it. It's (laughs) pink. Yes. Um, I think it's gender neutral, honestly, even though it's pink. Um, Oh, hell yes. Yes. I think, like, you know, men with swagger, like, you know, they rock, like, fun socks. Um, All the men at Slate have these socks, too. I think we got them in a, like... (laughs) I have these socks already. (laughs) I think we got a gift bag last year that had them in it. I love yeah, well, now now they're for sale, so um, readers and listeners can buy them. Um, in addition to that, they were selling um, sweatshirts, uh, slate sweatshirts, which are also gender neutral. They're just hoodies. They're gray. Um, it's a great gift for yourself or somebody in your life. So that's one thing that I have to recommend. And and yeah, you can get it at shop.slate.com. Um, it helps support the journalism we do here at Slate. And um, yeah, they're really fun. And it could be for anyone in your life or yourself. Um, but my other recommendation is um, I really recommend that everybody, I know Reddit is sort of not everybody's social network of choice, but I really recommend that people check out uh, the subreddit Troll X Chromosomes. Um, it is a community of feminist women. There are about uh, 800,000 women subscribed to it. Oh my God. And it's described as a subreddit for rage comics and feminist memes. And it's now the first place that I check it when I go log on on my phone in the morning. And 
basically, uh, I'm pretty involved in the community and, um, you know, women post everything from sort of personal struggles that they're going through or like my face when like somebody cat calls me on the street and it's like a rage gif um, or articles. Um, yeah, that like pertain to, quote, women's issues. Um, and yeah, it's a mixture between serious and funny. And um, I really recommend it. It's like very much of the moment of like, it's the stuff that you see is trending on Twitter, but it's all, uh, yeah, basically a bunch of badass women and, and non-binary people and trans women like are welcome in the community too, um, to talk about everything from, yeah, what's happening in politics to what's happening in pop culture. So I recommend that. It's the Troll X Chromosome subreddit. Hello, fellow trolls. If you listen to the waves, I'm shouting you out. So. <laughs> Um, I'm glad to hear about a spot on Reddit that isn't uh, full of horrible misogynist and racist sludge, because that's kind of what I think of when I think of Reddit. And maybe that's unfair. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely <laughs> Reddit is a, a lot of that. Um, I recommend using the mobile app because like the desktop Reddit is like really can be intimidating to people. The mobile app, it actually feels like a combination between Instagram and Facebook. Um, So I would recommend checking it out on your smartphone first. Um, And yeah, I mean, like the community is moderated pretty heavily. So like there definitely are some, you know, uh, meninists that come in and and try to troll us back. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the moderators do a really good job. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, I've been an active Redditor for like three years now and in the last year, I would say I've gotten really um, active in the community. Like, you know, people are talking about like, I got my I'm getting my Paragard IUD inserted tomorrow. Wish me luck. And it's like a funny meme of like a woman like cheering or like, you know, somebody venting, um, you know, about their significant other or, you know, ce- celebrating a new job. Um, so it's a really fun community of of women um, or people that like women. <laughs> rather. <laughs> so I recommend everybody check it out. Hmm. Um, I'm going to recommend a post on the site DCist. It brought me so much joy yesterday. I wasn't even going to recommend this, but then I read it yesterday and I was like, this needs to go on the waves. It was written by a writer named Natalie Delgadillo. Um, and the title of the post is After Bloodbath, the National Zoo's Naked Mole Rats Finally Choose Their Queen. This is a post that <laughs> anybody, not just people who live in D.C., can enjoy. It's a feminist fable. Uh, so I learned so much about naked mole rats in this post. Basically, at the National Zoo for the past couple months, the naked mole rats in the na- naked mole rat exhibit have been engaged in a power struggle to find their next leader. Um, and their like intra-community war caused the death of four mole rats, which was actually a pretty large proportion of the community. They started out with only 17 mole rats. Um, I didn't know this, but naked mole rats kind of function like bees. So only the queen reproduces and only with the male mole rats that she chooses. And the queen is a lot bigger than the other mole rats. Um, In this case, she's twice as big as some of the other mole rats in her mole rat community. Um, I kind of thought that these animals were just like rats um, that were made out of um, what I will call elbow skin um, because this is a family podcast. Um, They're like really gross looking. Um, 
but they're so fascinating. And um, the the woman who wrote this article is so good. It's hilarious. I learned that um, naked mole rats um, eat each other's poop and the queen's poop has hormones in it that uh, make her subjects want to care for the babies that she births. I learned that every time the queen gets pregnant and gives birth, her spine stretches and makes her even longer so that she can have more babies next time. She can like oh fit God. more in her body. Um, I learned that she sexually represses the other women in her colony and the males that she doesn't want to mate with so that they don't even go through puberty. It's such wow. a... it's. Uh, an incredible species of animal that I knew very little about. And there's this great drama, you know, worthy of any reality show that um, DCS chronicled on the site. And apparently this naked mole rat who just had, I think, three little babies is going to get pregnant again in a couple of days because that's how the queen functions. So I'm really proud of the naked mole rat queen. (laughs) Um, Read that post. It's called After Bloodbath, the National Zoo's Naked Mole Rats Finally Choose Their Queen. Wow. That's our show for today. Thank you so much to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. And I want to thank our listeners. This is our last episode of the year, the last episode of the year that I'll be on anyway. Um, Thank you for welcoming me into the Waves family this year. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app. Give us a rating and review. For Kristen Meinzer and TJ Raphael, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks again for listening. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.